I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Once again, I am recording while driving. I apologize, y'all did not get an episode yesterday, but I don't want to just record bullshit for the sake of putting something out there for you. Um, I I like to think about things and and really try to gather my thoughts and put to, put together a collection of what I actually think is an important subject. And I don't really like talking about modern politic in a traditional sense. Um, it's not really my interest. So, uh, you know, I might discuss the debates every once in a while or, or something like that, but I'm not interested in talking about a lot of the, the, just the typical political news that you hear so many other people talk about. It, it's not really my interest. Um, but I, uh, I had a story that I've kind of held on to for the last few years. And then after I just watched the docu-series, the mini docu-series on Netflix, The Family... And it kind of tied this story together for me. Um, I, I had this happen. This was an interaction I had a few years ago. I didn't really know what to make of it. I kind of held on to it. I, po- I remember posting about it on Facebook, and nobody really had anything to say about it. I don't think anybody even responded to, to it. I just thought it was such an odd interaction at the time that I kind of filed it away and every once in a while I would come back to it and think on it and try to discern what was being said. And, um, I think watching this, this docu-series, the family kind of tied it together a little bit for me, kind of put a bow on it. And immediately after watching that, I jumped on Facebook, um, and, Pete Canonis, Pete Raymond, had uh, posted his last uh, article that he had, had published. So, and that, that kind of tied into it. So, I'm going to kind of touch on all these things. Since I'm driving, I can't be reading from his articles. So, I'm just going to kind of give you kind of my take from it and kind of what my response is. To, to what he's talking about. <clears throat> and um, he's doing a really good job as the managing editor at Libertarian Institute. He's writing a lot of articles. I think he's writing like two or three articles every week, as well as doing three podcasts a week. So he's working really hard. So go check out um, Pete's articles at the libertarianinstitute.org. Um, also, check him out at free man beyond the wall and uh you know give him give him some bitcoin or something let's get him uh let's get him rolling full time and see see what kind of material he's going to be turning out when he can do this stuff five days a week without worrying about work but uh i was in i was in uh golden colorado uh, a few years back, I was picking up um, a load of beer from the Coors Brewery. 
and I was wearing a motorhead shirt. And um it was uh the it was motorhead hammered the hammered t shirt with the with the gold text, the gold writing, and then um it had the the skull with the chains. And uh this guy approached me. This black guy approached me, and I, I mentioned that he was black because I find it important to distinguish what he said to me as more contextual than ideological. Ideological. Um, if it would have been a white guy, it would have been very easy for somebody to paint him as a white supremacist or a white nationalist of some sort. But this was a black gentleman walked up to me. He goes, I like your shirt. And I was like, yeah, man, Motorhead was a badass band. And this was right after Lemmy had died. And he goes, oh, shit. I thought that was a Nazi shirt. And I kind of looked at him like, what? He goes, yeah, Hitler was an amazing guy. And I'm just kind of looking at him like, all right, let's get on with this. Like, what, do you, what, do you, what are you trying to say to me? You know, it kind of took me aback. It wasn't, it's not a conversation you typically have with a truck driver, right? Typically these guys are fucking idiots and they just want to talk about, oh, this four wheeler cut me off, you know, 30 miles down the road and I almost killed him and a family of six or whatever. And so I was kind of like, all right. And he goes, well, you know what he did, don't you? And I said, well, yeah. I'm not stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I know what he did. And he goes on and he starts talking about how Hitler had created a brotherhood, uh, a circle of loyalty that was unbreakable in that he had shown true militancy in his belief system and how his leadership was remarkable. And he talked about his leadership a lot. And he talked about this, this brotherhood, this, this circle of brotherhood. And, you know, when I think of circles like that, I think of, um, I think of like the banditos or the hell's angels or, Um, the Gambino crime family or something like that, like an organization in which the, the brotherhood is, is more important to the members than anything outside the brotherhood. Everything else is secondary. So you'll hear like people say God, family, country, where they put God first, family, second and then country third. Whereas within these organizations, it's the brotherhood before anything else. So if, if there's, if these brothers are, have a belief in God, it would be brotherhood, God, family, you know, that type deal. And when I was watching the family on Netflix about these, I don't even know if you would really call them Christians. I, I, they, I would, uh, I would refer to them as a uh, messianic cult of 
followers of Jesus's teachings. Um, they put a real heavy emphasis on Acts, um, which was um, Paul, I believe, wrote Acts about his um, his journey and his uh, evangelism. <laughs> and uh, I was I was that one of the one of the things they talked about was this circle that Hitler had had created and how they wanted to model their organization after the Nazi party. But they wanted to put instead of the Führer at the top, they wanted the father to be at the top. So it was uh, an evangelical fascism, I guess you would say. Um, that one of the guys in the in the documentary actually called it a Christian mafia, which I thought was an interesting take. But but it, the the documentary goes through how they created the national prayer breakfast, um, yada yada yada. I didn't really find the documentary interesting as much as I found it kind of creepy. Um, from a purely agnostic secularistic standpoint i find it really creepy um but the uh the last episode discussed trump uh more so than anything else and how the evangelical right views trump and they view him from what I gather, from what I can, from, from what this documentary explained. And, you know, you can watch it and, you know, take from it what you will. But what I gather is they view Trump as a King David type person. And they have this real old orthodox view of, of government. Um, that that government officials that that you know kings and dictators and government officials are are chosen by God. They're they're ordained to to carry out God's work, and God's using these imperfect vessels to to do his do his bidding. And so they view Trump as this, this Messiah, the Savior, um, as many people have put it, the God Emperor, uh, to to carry out and to fulfill prophecies of Jesus in the world, and to to evangelize and and their evidence to this is all the fundamentalists that he's placed within his cabinet, Pompeo and, uh, no, what's that fucker's name? Uh, that attorney general, Jeff Sessions, you know, even though he's not there anymore, um, Mike Pence and all these fundamentalist evangelical Christians that are around him. They, they view that as the symbol of God working through him as some kind of conductor, in order to 
to spread the message and, and evangelize the world um, through the presidency. It's it's really fucking creepy. Um, and it's creepy because you get this cult-like following of, of a man that is obviously imperfect. He's obviously full of fucking shit. He obviously doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about half the time. Yet, he's lifted up as this, as is, like I said, God emperor of sorts. And, and he's worshipped. But it's not reduced to the evangelical right, the, the Christian conservative right, that, that this happens. There are many within this organization that are progressive and, and um, Democrats. And so, so there's, there's a lot, lot happening here. But then you look at what Michael Malice has dubbed the evangelical left. And the use of moralistic language and the puritanical roots of, of America have been appropriated by the left in, in this society to create this, this moralism in which they deify the state. To, to a degree that they must cleanse society of hate speech and and prejudice and these abhorrent views, these abhorrent ideals. But in doing so, they adopt a lot of the... Um, abhorrent tactics of of the more authoritarian right and you start to see people that had started off as a less authoritarian left shifting into a more authoritarian direction and reflecting more of a Maoist or a Stalin type philosophy um, through intolerance. Um, and this is where, where Pete's article comes into play. Um, his article is called Left and Right, No Prospects for Liberty. And it's a obvious take off of Murray Rothbard's left and right, the prospects for liberty. Um, but what he's talking about is how he, he starts off talking about social media, creating this dysfunction within our society and how the collectivist left and the collectivist right have moved into these authoritarian corners and they're using authoritarian tactics and violent tactics 
against those who think differently than they do that that into which like maybe somebody you could have talked to about liberty on some level and come to some mutual agreement with on some level has become so intolerant of opposing views for whatever reason and we can discuss the I, I've brought it up before, but we, we can we can honestly discuss the idea that if you truly believe that those on the left are tankies or Stalinists or Maoists and are going to begin just genocide on their own people due to ideological differences that they're comes a point where some sort of preemptive action is is in defense is a defensive action so if somebody were to come on my property with a gun i don't have to wait for them to shoot me before i defend myself right so there there is a a a preemptive style of acting that is called for in self-defense at times. Dropping a 13-year-old boy on his head during your magical song because he didn't take his hat off for the, for the sky cloth is not self-defense. That is not preemptive self-defense. If you want to teach him, then have a conversation with the boy. Don't pick him up and drop him on his head and crack his fucking skull. In the same goes with the Black Bloc or Antifa um, protesters. The, when, when Patriot Prayer or Proud Boys shows up singing the Star Spangled Banner and waving American flags, they're not a threat. Now, they may have a distorted view of patriotism. But you're not going to educate somebody by smacking them in the face with a fucking bike lock or throwing piss on them. That's not how you educate people. That's not how you combat ideologies. Ideologies are only combated with better ideology. What people see whether you believe that you're acting in defense of your nation or not, what people are seeing is a violent group of quote-unquote terrorists. And I tend to agree with Michael Tracy on the use of the word terrorist. I think that allows for too much government intrusion into our lives. It allows for government to become authoritarian it allows for um, wide sweeps of constitutional infringements, and um, it, it mandates action against people with no due process. So I, I tend to agree that the use of the word terrorist has become out of control, but 
for the sake of people understanding what I'm talking about, I'm going to say terrorist in quotes because that is a, the word that is commonly used in, in modern vernacular to describe what is happening. But when, you are, when you're attacking citizens that are seemingly peaceful at the moment of conflict or up until the moment of conflict, you're not doing anything to create sympathy for your, for your plight. And your best bet is to find a way to interact with these people in a way that they understand. Because as I've pointed out several times before, the left and right are speaking different languages. Speaking utterly different languages. And I'll use this as an example because I, I found this interesting. There's a guy I, I, I've been, I chat with on Facebook and he's of the left, um, American left, quote unquote. And I've gotten to the point where I depend on his opinion on, on things because Whenever I bring up a subject, I don't just want to appeal to a small segment of the population. I want to be able to talk about these things in such a way that it's understandable from both sides. Whenever I came to anarchism, I came from a constitutional conservative conservatarian, Glenn Beck style um, ideology. That's kind of where I was at. That's where I was at on the political spectrum. I was, I was moving damn road pirates. Um, I was moving into anarchy or libertarianism from that constitutional conservative aspect. And the people that attracted me into the libertarian mindset were those of the Mises Caucus um, or, the, or, or of the Mises Institute, Judge Napolitano because I was familiar with him, and I had a lot of respect for him already. Lou Rockwell, I was already familiar with him in, at some, uh, in, to some degree. Um, Scott Horton, obviously, on anti-war. Uh, Tom Woods and Murray Rothbard. And, and these people opened my mind to be able to come to a logically consistent Conclusion, the, the logical conclusion of what my ideas already were. And if I walked along the lines of principle, I would find myself in an anarcho-capitalist mindset. Okay? 
but I was already kind of like a fan of Milton Friedman. I was already kind of a fan of Ayn Rand. I was already kind of a fan of these these more menarchist style of individuals. What you see on the left is a different pathway to a very similar ideology. Economics, we disagree on, and I, I grant that, but though I think economics has a role in explaining modern problems in modern society, I'm not certain that the economics we see or that we, we experience, that we read in modern society would do any good in explaining successes or failures in a government-free society, right? In a stateless society, I don't think you would have the same economic arguments. And I think there would be another kind of form of economic thought that kind of propelled the society because in a Austrian, from an Austrian mindset, from an Austrian standpoint, there's no issue with co-ops and there's no issue with individuals operating as long as everything's done on a voluntary basis the the market through competition forces would balance and so and this is just like i'm just easily t just touching on it real real simply i don't really want to get down in depth um because i know not everybody that listens to me has you know red man economy and state so and I'm not even sure I understand man economy and state well enough to explain it to anybody. But but so you you're acting in such a way that it's voluntarily cooperating among each other. Well, when people come from the left, they fall into a more Chomskyist view, right? And they end up calling themselves mutualists in, in a lot of ways. Now, the difference between a mutualist and a voluntarist are by degrees. Like, I have much more in common with a mutualist than I do with a conservative. Because a mutualist... If you sit down and say, okay, but look, if I were to transform my property that I live upon, I transform this 10 acres into a bed and breakfast or a vacation spot, and I charge people appropriately according to the market, not ripping people off. Like, would you come in violently and shut me down? And they're like, like most people would be like, no, I prefer. 
that you operated in in, an, in a co-op type of fashion, but I wouldn't come in and shut you down. And I say, that's fine. I understand that you prefer that, but I prefer to work with my family, my family members, and create my, my community around my family, my familiar structure. So, and that's what I find comforting. And, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess. It's not really like you're not taking advantage of people. You're not hurting anybody. And so these, what, what happens is when, when you start looking, when, when somebody says something along the lines that um, private property they're, and they're trying to distinguish between private property and personal property, the argument gets convoluted. It, it gets really nuanced and complex, and you're like, wait, what? Like, I can own a toothbrush, but I can't own land? But what if I change the land? What if I'm farming that land? You know, I'm not suggesting that because I'm farming the land and I'm selling the crops and I'm making a profit and I'm making a living off of my land that I homesteaded, I'm not suggesting that there, I will not contribute to charity. What I'm suggesting is that the fruits of my, of my labor are my own. And in a lot of ways, the syndicalists or the communists are saying the same things. They've just, they've, what, they, what they're doing is they're applying the fruits of labor to the employee that is being, in their mind, being exploited. And I can't fault them completely because the corporatist system, this cronyism that we live within, it does allow for an exploitation. Now, the exploitation comes via government power, via inflationary tactics, via Federal Reserve um, manipulating currency and interest rates. And, and uh, through the fiat currency having no real significant value over time, and when you're making, let's say, you're, you're making, let's say, $60,000 a year today, but you're living the quality of life that somebody making $30,000 a year 15 years ago was living, there, there's an argument to be made that there is an exploitation happening, but the exploitation is happening at a higher developmental level than the person that hired you. And then so when they come in and they're asking, well, we need a minimum wage hike they're recognizing that the that money's not going as far. They recognize the problem. They recognize the symptoms, right? But they're not recognizing that the disease was caused due to the banking system, due to the Federal Reserve, due to the, the inflationary process, due to quantitative easing and the printing of money, that... The, the abandonment of the gold uh, standard has led to this, this economic strife among um, 
the citizenry and has led to this increased inequality. They're not recognizing that. So what I'm what I'm saying is that as we as we begin to move into these different camps and away from the more authoritarian style thinkers, the more binary thinkers, because what I find whenever I talk to somebody who's a um, whether they're a evangelical right or evangelical left, what I find is they're very binary thinking. You're either with me or against me. And if you don't think the exact same way that I think, if you're not heading, if your destination is not the exact same as mine, then you're an enemy. You know, whether you're a libtard or a fascist, you're an enemy. And this is like I, what I responded to Pete on, on his article. This is a political crusades of sort. And the, the death of America, the, the balkanization of this nation, um, I think will come very similarly to the Soviet Union. And it will probably result be the result of the dollar collapsing altogether, which that's difficult to predict because even though these federal, the, the banking system has created such a dystopia societally or amongst society, I guess would be the right way to say it. Um, they have they've become master manipulators and they figured out how to float these bubbles and 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 hit hit the maximum amount of pain that people will accept just in time to inflate another bubble right and eventually, they're, they're not going to be able to control the boom-bust cycle um, near as tactfully. And uh, you're going to continue to see more violent elements on the left and more violent elements on the right. And what I'm suggesting is that those of us that call ourselves Voluntarists learn how to speak the languages of both left and right so that we can make the necessary alliances with those against the state. Like I said, I've noticed that mutualism is a degree or two different than voluntarism, but it's not that much different. It's not that far apart. Yet I find that the more I study voluntarism, the more I study anarchism, the more I study mutualism, the less I see in common with the minarchist and the conservatives. The further away I feel from the progressives and the liberals.
when I when I scroll through social media and I'm looking at the comments that people are making and how people are addressing subjects, very few comments, very few contributors come across as if they are on the same island I am on. And when I say island, I mean this island of thought, this island of what what do I do in order to open the minds and eyes of the people to the illegitimacy and the evils of the state? What do I do to show the corruption and the incompetence of the state? Whereas most people, whether left or right, are defending the institutions while I feel like a third wheel on a bicycle this out of place. Like I, I, I don't even belong. And so I, I'm thankful to those people that listen to my podcast, that put up with my ramblings, my monologues. Um, I promise uh, interviews will be, will be forthcoming before the end of the year. I will get that taken care of. Um, until then, you're probably just stuck with my thoughts and my feelings. But I think we have to start looking at both the evangelical left and the evangelical right as enemies of the same ilk, as part of the same institutions that oppress everyone. And just because one of them may point out bigotry and racism, and one of them may claim to be the champions of individual rights, neither of them are our friends because both of them are defending the state when it boils down to it. Both of them want to participate. Both of them are willing to compromise. And as I said before, we cannot continue to compromise freedoms and liberties in the face of the tyranny that is running this country. And it's gotten so ridiculous. It's gotten so over-the-top ridiculous that when you listen to to Trump talk about red flag laws or ending due process for gun owners or, or you listen to the, de- the, the, the democratic debates, you're like, none of these people are actually trying to win. <laughs> it's, it is the most insane thing ever. But then you're like, Oh no, they are. But those of us that see through the authoritarian masks that they're wearing 
understand or or are are, are such a minority that they're speaking to the worshipers of the state, the authoritarian lovers of the state. And it is up to us to not cooperate along these lines anymore. It is up to us to say, I'm not paying your taxes. I'm not going to give you money to continue these injustices and this totalitarian view this totalitarian, these totalitarian and authoritarian actions, locking up people for for victimless offenses against the state, the center against the state. State. I, I will not continue to send you support in murdering people overseas. I will not continue to participate in your culture war and pretend like one or both of these actors are legitimate when both of them are just asking for more authority. They just want authority to use against their political enemies. They just want authority to use against the people that do not agree with them. They think binarily, right? When a quote-unquote constitutional conservative will straight up tell you that there is no such thing as natural rights and all your rights come from the state because the state is benevolent and the state is the arbiter of rights, they're no different than a progressive that says the state should force you to pay for someone else's health care. They are different by degrees, they are fighting over who controls the rest of the country. We are fighting for liberty. We are fighting from freedom from the oppression of the state. And we have to keep that in mind when we are dealing with these people. We have to keep that in mind when we are conversing with these people. They may be using the same words that we are, but they are not speaking the same language that we are. And the only way that you learn to determine who's speaking what language is to figure out how each side of the aisle is using that language, how they're manipulating that language to, to fit their narrative and their idea of the power structure and how the hierarchy of, of the state shall be set up to compel you to coerce you, to force you by the use of violence to live in the manner that they see fit. I try to avoid ethical and moral arguments because moral arguments are the arguments are of evangelism. They're the arguments of religion. And those that obey the state, that view the state as a cult, as the cult it is, attempting to cleanse the earth of its sins, 
So I, my, my entire point for this is this particular episode is watch out for these political crusades and don't get caught up in these political crusades. Because if your ultimate goal, if your ends is a stateless society, their means will not get you there. So that's all I got for you for today. That was my 45 minute rant. So I hope y'all enjoyed it. I will have another episode coming out. I promise we will talk about Epstein, 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 Epstein this week. Uh, Gislaine, Gislaine, Ghislaine, whatever her name is, Robert Maxwell's daughter. And, um, We'll, uh, we'll touch on that, uh, as disgusting as it is, but for now, I'm Tommy Salmons late.